the final panel of a, uh, a really good 27th annual Cato Monetary uh, Conference. I was here from early morning and enjoyed it, uh, enjoyed it thoroughly. I'm Don Boudreau. I'm professor of economics at George Mason University. And I'm very happy to uh, be the moderator of this this uh, afternoon panel, even though I'm having a bad hair day. Um, when, when, when people, you know, in talking about the, the, the current economic turmoil, you know, everyone debates to what extent is it the market, to what is extent, to what extent is it intervention. Uh, one thing I, I, I point out, I mean, a lot of these specific questions remain to be answered, but there is one incredibly important institution that is emphatically not a market institution, and that is the fiat currency that we call the dollar. And so for the, to those people especially who insist that the last few years uh, uh, and the turmoil of the last few years are evidence of the incapacity of free markets to uh, maintain growing prosperity, I say, well, you know, we can debate individual points about this regulation, that particular piece of deregulation, but you cannot deny that uh, money is supplied by a monopolistic government agency and it's, it's infused throughout the entire economy. So the very important topic of alternatives to government monopoly fiat money, or put differently as the title of today's session, this afternoon's session, reads, toward a market-based monetary regime. It's perhaps the, uh, I'm biased up here, I suppose, but perhaps the most important topic of this 27th Cato Monetary Conference. And we have a great lineup for you. Um, the first speaker is uh, the University of Chicago's, I should have had this, let me find my papers here. Oh, it's Z, it's at the end. Luigi Zingales, and Luigi is the Robert C. McCormick Professor of Entrepreneurship and Finance at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, where he's been on the faculty since 1992. And in 2003, he won the Bernasta Prize for the Best European Young Financial Economist. And in the 2005-2006 academic year, he was visiting professor at Harvard. Um, I love the title of his 2003 book, uh, that he co-authored, Saving Capitalism from the Capitalists, which reminds me of Milton Friedman's uh, stricture that uh, capitalism uh, has very few friends among business people. Luigi. Thanks. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. And uh, honestly, uh, my talk would be more about uh, a market-based regulatory policy rather than market-based mon monetary policy, but I hopefully uh, would be in theme <coughs> anyway. I think that uh, speaking of saving capitalists, I think that uh, the too-big-to-fail doctrine that has become increasingly the government policy on this issue is probably the most dangerous policy for capitalists we can imagine. It undermines sort of uh, capitalism in many ways because it makes the system sort of uh, less stable, but also undermines sort of the moral basis of capitalism. If you have a, a, a sector, if you have a sort of an institution where uh, 
losses are socialized, but uh, uh, gains are privatized, then uh, you really undermine the moral base for capitalism and making it sort of unsustainable in the long term. So it's really important to think what we can do against this uh, too-big-to-fail policy. Now, I've spoken with uh, many sort of congressmen, and the, the most motivated ones say that what we should do is legislate it away. So trying to introduce enough constraints that will make it impossible in the future to do what we have done now. While these are clearly well-intentioned, I think they don't get the essence of the point. Uh, in order to get the essence of the point, let me use an analogy. I think that uh, as parents, we know that uh, we should let our children learn from their mistakes. We should not be too interventionist and bail them out because they don't learn from their mistakes. However, when they get into real serious trouble, when their life is in danger... Uh, it's impossible for us as parents not to intervene. It would be against nature not to intervene. And no matter how you can try to commit exempt and not to intervene, uh, when your, your, your son or daughter's life is in danger, you will intervene. And that's a little bit like the situation we are right now. I will explain you why, when it comes to large financial institutions, it's basically impossible to stop the political intention to intervene. And so what we need to do is try to live with this and try to introduce mechanisms to minimize the damage that this will create to the system. Because if we ignore it, if we live under the illusion we can legislate the way, we're making the problem only bigger. So why there is it too big to fail to begin with? And this is why we think that... Uh, GM can go under with no problem, but uh, Citigroup cannot be, go under with, with no problem. The answer is that whenever there is sort of a, a bankruptcy or the possibility of bankruptcy, there are two effects on competitors. One is a substitution effect. When GM goes under, Ford celebrates because uh, there is more market share. So that's beneficial to Ford. Then there is a sort of complementarity effect when GM goes under, there are two effects that affect GM in a negative way. One is sort of a, you know, they might have joint suppliers. In fact, they do do have joint suppliers. And uh, if uh, the failure of GM brings down suppliers of GM, they will also impact the survival of Ford. The second is, of course, an information spillover, the fact that uh, if you see GM go, going under, you start doubting whether the sort of car industry is viable in the long term, and that's a negative effect for Ford as well. Now, what is unique about financial institutions is that the complementarity effect is much, much bigger. They have a lot of contracts that interlink them so that uh, when GM goes under, when Citigroup goes under, the probability that other sort of banks go under at the same time is very large. And while we can afford to live without Citigroup, we cannot afford to live without a banking sector. Okay, so the risk is what I call the fear of Armageddon, that uh, whether it is a realistic possibility or not is large enough that no policymaker will take that risk when faced with a choice. No matter what uh, your ideology is, you don't want to go down in history as the governor of the Fed that uh, was watching when the financial system in the United States melted down, or the Secretary of Treasury that watched when the financial system went down. So even if the is not rational, you're going to intervene no matter what. The second point why this is so irresistible 
is that we know that there are bank runs, and we know that in a bank run situation, uh, there is an inefficiency that uh, some assets are liquidated uh, too fast and too soon, and, uh, and some value is dissipated. So there is some value to be created at least ex post. Now, if you are in this room, you probably know that there are very few situations, if at all, where the government can create value. Uh, but I think that this is actually one in which it can create value ex post at the cost of destroying incentives ex ante. But given that the government has, an, has a huge tendency to intervene, even when it destroys value, it's very hard to preempt or prevent its intervention when it can create some value ex post. It seems like a free lunch and is irresistible. And this is actually very uh, similar to the time inconsistency that policymakers have studied so much for monetary policy. Uh, you always want, when push comes to shove, as sort of a, a, a secretary of treasury, as a politician, you want to increase sort of money supply to trying to buy a little bit of employment today at the cost of dramatic sort of uh, uh, unemployment in the future. And the same is, is here. When it, it does happen, when you are close to a financial meltdown, you want to intervene, even if this will have dramatic costs in the future. So I think that uh, legislating this away is unrealistic. We need to find a solution because, you know, in 1995, in 1998, it took the Fed only coffee and donuts to organize the rescue of long-term capital management. In 2008, it took the federal government more than $700 billion to organize the rescue. I don't want to think what the bill will be in 2018. So we really need to act and act now to stop these incentives because really the moral hazard generated is not only that managers invest in sort of wild, risky activity. It's also that the debt is, for large financial institutions is too cheap. The real source of the problem is that creditors know they will be bailed out, and as a result of that, price the debt very cheaply. And if you are a manager, when you see the debt so cheap, is an irresistible temptation to take a lot of it, to leverage up as much as possible as a result of that. So the first thing you want to do is to find a way to recreate the incentives, the market incentives for creditors to pay attention. Because the reason why in a lot of other situations we don't see that are doing crazy things is because creditors pay attention and they put covenants and they limit the amount of debt they give. Why? Because they have incentives to do so. So we need to recreate incentives. But how do we recreate the incentives for this to take place when at the same time we are aware that in the worst situation the government will intervene? And the answer is to start to create a regime where you differentiate dramatically between what I call systemic obligations and what systemic is not. So during the last crisis, everybody has said that deposits are systemic, maybe repo, repo contracts are systemic, and even derivative contracts are systemic. There is no reason in the world why long-term debt of financial institutions should be systemic at all. It's held by pension fund, by mutual funds, by foreign investors that can absorb losses like they absorb the losses of the Internet bubble. So there is no reason to bail them out. The only reason to bail them out is that we don't have in place 
a procedure to differentiate between the two. And of course, when you start to bail out a group, then there is a huge queue of people say, I want to be bailed out too. I belong to the same group. I, I'm no different. Why don't you bail out me too? So the first mechanism is we need a system where the, when the government intervenes, differentiate between systemic obligation and non-systemic obligation. In fact, I'm in favor of having a mandatory buffer of long-term junior debt that will protect the systemic obligations. In order to make sure that the systemic obligations are paid in all the states of the world without government guarantee, I think that we want a system that mimics the marketplace and mimic the margin call system. When you borrow on margin, your broker is no fool. Uh, he or she updates the position every day on the base of a market price. And if uh, the position is sort of low enough, what he or she does is make a call. Either you put more equity down, more collateral, or I liquidate and I get my money back. So we want a similar system for banks. We consider the equity of banks as the collateral in a margin call. So what we need to do is devise a system that makes this margin call be called timely. Because we don't trust any regulator to intervene on time. So the system we have in mind is a system that actually piggybacks on this long-term debt. If this long-term debt actually can be penalized, the price of this long-term debt would be a very credible signal that the first buffer in this system, so we have an equity buffer and a long-term buffer, the, uh, the equity buffer is running thin. And in that particular case, the regulator should intervene, do a stress test with only two possible outcomes. Number one, consider that the debt was indeed at risk, so take over the institution, start to unwind the institution, paying off in full the systemic obligation, but actually penalizing the long-term debt because sort of uh, the company was indeed in trouble. The other possibility is for the uh, regulator to say, no, uh, the market was maybe irrationally uh, risk-averse, risk so the institution is safe, but because the regulator will tend to do that too often, we want the regulator to put some money down in the process and say, okay, I have an endowment. I invest part of my endowment in junior debt of this institution with two functions. Number one, if I make a mistake, a legitimate mistake, I help contributing to protect the systemic obligations that, that need to be saved at all costs. Number two, if I make a mistake, uh, my endowment will go down because I sort of uh, uh, lose some of the money. Number three, if this is really a temporary liquidity, my money down will help bring down uh, the tension and will bring the prices of bonds up. And so the trigger will go uh, in, in place, will be no problem. Uh, if I made a mistake, then the market will signal that the institution is still in trouble. And so the regulator has to come a second time and then will lose his face to say, you know, I keep saying that this is fine and I have to keep putting extra money and the market keeps signaling that I'm in trouble. So eventually the regulator will seize the institution. So this is a very simple mechanism that actually, the, ironically, what I think is the best trigger is the credit default swap on the price of the bonds. In a market where credit for swaps are traded on a regular exchange and properly collateralized, are really a good indicator of how risky the debt is. And that is going to be the trigger of the margin call. 
this system is a very balanced system. We don't want to give too much power to the regulator because we know two things. Number one, it will abuse it. Number two, it will be late to the game, as the regulators always are. So we want a market trigger. We don't want to abuse the market trigger either, either because we are afraid of what are called self-fulfilling prophecy. The market gets very worried. The regulator intervenes, penalizes the debt, and this uh, so fulfills the prophecy. So we have this stress test as a market uh, circuit breaker to prevent this escalation. But at the same time, we are very afraid of the perverse inten- incentive of the regulator. So we design a system to penalize the regulator if he makes mistakes. So this system should apply only for very large financial institutions. Will be costly? Yes, it should be costly. It should be costly to undo a major distortion that exists today, a distortion that favors large institutions at the cost of small institutions. Today, the implicit too-big-to-fail doctrine is a subsidy to large financial institutions with a lot of negative effects. Number one, we are going to have more concentration, which is bad for consumers because they gain market power, and it's bad for taxpayers because we're going to have more of the institutions that we have to bail out in the future. So having a differentiated regulation for them will only undo this bias, reintroducing a fair marketplace. Thank you. Thank you. Um, We'll next hear from uh, Leland Yeager through Rob Greenfield. Uh, Yeager was one of uh, my professors uh, when I was in graduate school, and I, I, I learned more microeconomics, not to mention macroeconomics, in Leland Yeager's macroeconomics course than I've learned in uh, any other economics course that I've, I've taken. I want to make sure I have no other professors out there. <laughs> uh, Rob Greenfield, who will present Leland's paper, is a professor of economics and uh, acting provost at Fairleigh Dickinson University's Metropolitan Campus. And together with Leland, he wrote a very important paper uh, that was re- the, the, that uh, Ben McCallum referred to earlier today uh, in the JMCB uh, in 1983 entitled A Laissez-Faire Approach to Monetary Stability, as well as several other articles with Leland uh, exploring the uh, promise of, of uh, fundamental monetary reform. Rob? Thank you, Don. And I'd like to thank Ben McCallum for having introduced me earlier today and by so doing, making it unnecessary for me to read and you to hear the first of five pages that I've written myself on Jaeger's paper. Uh, About a quarter of a century ago, uh, Larry White told me that the job of a commentator is to give his own paper. Well, I'm embroidering just a little bit on your law, Larry. My corollary is that someone sent to summarize someone else's paper is to give his own paper as well. Let me start, if I may, by uh, defining a couple of the terms that uh, Professor McCallum used when he addressed you this morning. Uh, He referred to a medium of account and a unit of account. What exactly is the difference? Well, let me illustrate the difference by uh, uh, referring to it in the context of a gold standard. Uh, In a gold standard, gold is the medium of account. The unit of account, however, is the pre-specified quantity of gold that defines the dollar. Um, 
Yeager and I believe that uh, we could do better than gold in our choice of a medium of account. The demand for gold is, for one thing, also industrial and perhaps even especially uh, monetary. And for that reason, uh, its value is likely to change in relation to other things. Since the price of a predetermined quantity of gold couldn't change, it, after all, would define the unit of account to make gold more valuable, let's say, the price of everything else would have to fall. And with the tendency of prices to fall comes more, or, more ordinarily than not adverse effects on output and employment. A basket, an assortment of goods and services, would, we think, do better than gold or any other single commodity as the medium of account. With the dollar defined as a comprehensive basket of goods and services, the general level of dollar prices would be far less variable than it would be under a single commodity definition of the dollar. The more inclusive the basket, the more stable the dollar's value in terms of goods and services in general. But what about making that definition operational through redeemability? And this was the point, I take it, that Professor McCallum uh, questioned this morning. Redeeming money in the comprehensive basket itself, of course, would be awkward for everyone concerned. Instead of being promised and carried out this way, the redemption would be indirect, and we have James Buchanan to thank for that term, indirect convertibility. Redemption would be indirect, not in the basket itself, but in a medium of redemption whose quantity had the same market value as the number of dollar-defining baskets denominating the note or deposit being redeemed. This is the essential point of Jaeger's paper, to draw a sharp distinction between the medium of account on the one hand and the medium of redemption on the other. Quite distinct from what defines the dollar, the medium of redemption could be gold or more likely some one or more commodities or even securities. The choice of redemption medium itself is not crucial. Although the dollar would be defined by physical amounts of goods and services, redemption media would be delivered not in pre-specified physical amounts, but in value amounts. The amount of redemption medium to be delivered against a note denominated $1 would increase or decrease in the same proportion as the price of the dollar-defining baskets fleetingly came to exceed or perhaps fall short of $1. So, too, would the required physical amount of redemption medium vary, though in the opposite direction, of course, as its own price happened to change. Now, most of this redemption activity would take place at the clearinghouses, where money issuers would routinely settle net balances due one another. Everyday commerce would continue to work just as it, it does, as it does today. People would buy and sell things by tendering and accepting dollar-denominated notes and, and deposits. The general public would need know no more about what large-scale arbitrageurs did behind the scenes to keep the dollar from losing contact with its commodity basket definition than we, know to need, than we need to know today about what the FOMC really says during its deliberations. Only economists would care or would know or care that in contrast with our existing system, the multi-commodity definition uh, made operational through indirect convertibility 
would lack a dominant issuer whose note or deposit liability defined the dollar. The system, in other words, would have no base money at all. No 1930s-style scramble for base money could occur because there would be nothing to scramble for. Under indirect convertibility, banking panics and other textbook questions concerning bank reserves, reserve ratios, the money multiplier and the like, all of these questions would simply not apply. No longer, no longer would the quantity of money be a magnitude determined as it is nowadays on the supply side. And those of you who have studied with Jaeger, who have written his, uh, read his works, will know what I mean when I say that now money would have a market of its own. Banks would supply the quantity of money that the public felt comfortable holding at the price level determined by the dollar basket's definition. Say that because of an increased demand for money holdings, a tendency developed for the basket's composite price to fall beneath $1. Well, banks would then take advantage of the profitable opportunity to issue additional money on loan or even to buy things with the new money themselves. Say, on the other hand, however, that the demand for money holdings fell and that, therefore, the basket's composite price showed signs of rising above $1. Then, redemption demands and arbitrage would remove the excess quantity of money. Stabilizing the dollar, stabilizing the price level, excuse me, stabilizing the price level would no longer require measuring a monetary aggregate and then adroitly managing its quantity. The dollar would have meaning as immutable as that of the yard, the supply of and demand for money would no more affect the meaning of dollar than the supply of and demand for yardsticks changes the meaning of yard. Now, mentioning arbitrage suggests yet another reason for using a comprehensive basket to define the dollar. Under direct redeemability, Jaeger reminds us, arbitrage would reduce or expand any tendency the dollar might show of losing contact with its commodity definition. And that would help short circuit any tendency for the dollar to lose that contact with its commodity definition. Under indirect convertibility, by contrast, no such market pressure would operate because the basket's components would have, would have no alternative monetary use, no monetary alternative to their commercial use. General monetary pressures alone would operate then, and because general monetary pressures operate very broadly, they would operate more effectively if given a very broad target. If the target were narrow, a pre-specified quantity of gold, for example, if the target were narrow, corrective monetary pressures could well fritter themselves away on unfortunate side effects involving output. Now, for the same reason that we would want a broadly inclusive basket of things to define the dollar, we would not want items with highly flexible prices to dominate that definition. Uh, if these uh, highly flexible prices should so show even a transitory upward blip, their doing so would trigger deflationary pressures with the uh, usual and unfortunate side effects involving output and employment. Using a multi-commodity definition of the dollar made operational through indirect convertibility has not, of course, been without its critics. 
Some criticism, however, has been just downright silly. Critics conjuring up images of frustrated DC commuters trying to shove sheets of plywood into MetroCard vending machines. Uh, in fact, those vending machines would work just as they, knew, as they do nowadays, accepting dollar-denominated notes and coins and making change in the very same. Other critics charged that the dollar's gold, that the dollar's value would be indeterminate, just as we all know it would be under a supposed gold standard in which when redeeming a dollar note, the bank decided that it would deliver a dollar's worth of gold. Again, however, under indirect convertibility, the medium of redemption, the medium of redemption, not the medium of account, would be delivered in value amounts. Perhaps other still-to-be-heard critics will be more persuasive. We'll just have to wait and see. I'll end, then, by conveying to you, Jaeger, sincere apologies for not being here. I know several of you very much look forward to seeing him by thanking you for accepting me as a pinch hitter and by urging that when you read his paper, you linger a while on footnote three. There, Jaeger expresses his own exasperation with the current consensus on monetary policy, which neglects the actual quantity of money and instead emphasizes a targeted interest rate as the determinant of total spending. Perhaps economists now regard the relation between the quantity of money and interest rate targeting as being so old hat that even mentioning it would make a body appear unsophisticated. Perhaps that's true, but as Jaeger says, somebody should explain the relation to our financial journalists. I've heard it said that each generation has to learn economics for itself. Perhaps this old adage has something to it. Still, it would be a shame to lose the gains that Leland Yeager and other monetarists have hard won. It appears now that these economists may someday look down upon their economists' descendants, and as Shakespeare surely would do, in effect wonder how anyone could have rewritten Hamlet, and here I'm quoting David Laidler, rewritten Hamlet and omitted the ghost. Thanks, Rob. We're now going to hear from Richard Braun, who is a senior fellow at this very institution, Cato, and chairman of the Institute for Global Economic Growth. He's also a weekly economic columnist for the Washington Times and serves on the editorial board of the Cayman Financial Review. And uh, he was also appointed in 1982 by uh, Ronald Reagan, when Reagan was president, as a member to be a member of the Quadrennial Social Security Advisory Council. Richard. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's good to be here with you. Um, Jim Dorn had mentioned this is the 27th monetary conference. And my goal is to end these monetary conferences. You've noticed things have been getting worse rather than better. And so I was trying to think practically, how do we do that? And uh, fortunately, Judy Shelton and you, reading Leland's paper, gave me the perfect setup for what I want to discuss today. I had, um, years ago, I struggled with these baskets. And 
I was a fan of Jaegers and the and uh, Larry White's and uh, George Sheldon and the others who have been writing extensively on this for years. How do we privatize money? How do we actually do it? Uh, in the 1980s, I was chief economist of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and I had at that time a considerable staff which I could order to do things. And I had a group of them running endless regressions, trying to find the optimum currency or a commodity basket in the uh, – 1970s, when I first came to Washington after I got into graduate school, I, uh, Hayek came out with his book, Denationalization of Money, in 76. And I became a great fan of that book. Really sort of had me thinking very radically different. And I was, at that point, representing New York Mercantile Exchange here in Washington. And one of my jobs was to come up with new exchange contracts. And the most successful one we did was number two heating oil, the first successful petroleum contract. But the, um, I tried to talk my, the folks at the exchange, the board of directors, into doing uh, currency basket contracts. And at that point, they thought I was totally mad. Of course, now it's, it's a big deal. But, you know, they thought, well, there's this crazy young professor. And I had Hayek's book. None of them had ever heard of Hayek. Um, <clears throat> so I've been struggling with this over the years. And uh, unlike a lot of my colleagues, I've also been in business, I've created businesses, and I try to think, how can we do this practically? And um, I've, I've, like many of you, have gotten pe pessimistic about the political situation here in Washington, and I keep thinking, how do we do an end run around it? Um, all of you are familiar with the Dow Jones Industrial Index. Dow Jones produces this privately. Um, and they've had it, it's been going back over 100 years. Of the 30 companies now in the Dow Jones Industrial Index, only one is the original one, and that's General Electric. And we have all kinds of uh, funds trading on the Dow Jones Industrial and the transportation, the S&P. All these private indexes, indices, are so well regarded, and they have so much integrity because the private sector knows that Dow Jones and Standard & Poor, owned by McGraw-Hill, have such an incentive to keep the integrity of the index because if they don't, they've lost their whole business model. And so we have literally hundreds of billions of dollars of trading of, 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 of securities based on these various indices. And we can do the same thing with money. I, I like, the again, the commodity basket. But... As I struggled with this, here I have a BlackBerry. A lot of you have Blackberries and iPhones. I want you to think about how much of your income now you spend on communications, devices like this, on the Internet stuff, versus commodities. You go back 120 years, and grains, uh, wheat, corn, so forth, and basic metals and wood, things that we have these commodities we're a big portion of what we spend our money on. They're a tiny portion now. Uh, you probably know how much do we spend on food now as a percentage of our income. It's, I mean, not talking about restaurants. We're talking about supermarkets. I'm a moderator. I'm unprepared. <laughs> Don, I've known you. You always have answers for everything. That's okay, 10, 11, 12 percent, something. Anyway, it's tiny. Um, and so... In trying to do the commodity basket, 
the commodities are a diminishing portion of what we spend our income on. And we were looking at things like putting in shipping rates, trying to look at global prices. And it's very tough to do. And again, I struggled with this for a fair amount of time. So my alternative proposal, which can be practically done, it does not take any governmental permission at all. And in fact, afterwards, maybe during the cocktail reception, a few of us can get together. Gil Shelton there has been a banker and a few of the rest of you, and we can figure out just actually how to set up this business. But it would be a basket of currencies. Now, my long-term friend and colleague, Warren Coates, wrote a beautiful paper back in 1994 of how the FDR um, could be a global money using basically the basket of currency. Judy talked about it a little bit earlier. Um, and uh, Warren, even though he says he's libertarian, always has this bias towards these government agencies because they've funded them all these years when he was on the, on, the, on the staff of the Fed and the IMF, and we constantly have to push him back towards free markets. But it's, it's a great paper, and I recommend you all read it. Um, it's referenced in my paper. But the it, doing, let's assume, for instance, that the IMF was not political. We all understood from the last panel it's highly political and decisions would be screwed up. But we even set that aside. Still, the problem with it is uh, you do have to do the occasional substitution of, of, of currencies in the basket. Um, same, the proposal I'm making is have a, a currency basket but have it broader than the one for the SDR. But the thing I would do is index each of the currencies for inflation. Uh, Warren will argue this is partially taken care of in that you, with uh, the daily exchange rate adjustments you would make as of just in the markets, you would alter the weighting of the currencies on actually now in a minute-by-minute minute basis, you could do that. But you don't capture the global inflation. If when you have one in currency, it's inflating much more rapidly than the other. Um, this diminishes the effect by having the adjustments made on the exchange rate basis. So I argue by putting in inflation measures in addition to that, <coughs> now all the major countries have... Uh, measures of inflation, and some are better than others, but trying to look at what things are most similar and probably the mes best measures of inflation, we can make adjustments on it. Now, these would be monthly adjustments also, but if you've got 15 currencies, the monthly adjustments would come out sort of uh, not on the same day with everybody, and uh, it wouldn't really have that much effect. But the problem with all the inflation measures we normally use, like the CPIU, they're always backward-looking. And um, so you're capturing what previous inflation was. So I'd add another little wrinkle in. And those countries that have index, inflation index bonds, like we do in the U.S. and U.K., we could take a look at the difference in the bond spreads, again, on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. And if the bond spreads were increasing between the inflation index bond and the non-inflation index bond, that's telling you the market perceives existing or future higher rates of inflation, and you could put a factor in for there. Uh, for those countries that don't have inflation index bonds, you could just do an approximation of bond spreads. 
these will all be very small adjustments. But as long as it's totally transparent, in the same way Dow Jones and the others, let's take the Dow Jones index. Uh, the number, the Dow Jones number, doesn't mean anything absolutely. It's not the sum prices of the 30 stocks in, in the index. That has evolved over time, and they have various ways of adjusting it, and it's all highly transparent. And the people who look at this on a daily basis, uh, like when we tossed out GM last year, and forgotten who to put in for GM, remember? Um, <clears throat> it was a way, uh, again, this is so clearly transparent, it has not presented a problem. And we could do the same thing with monetary baskets and basically get around uh, much of the problem that uh, we now have. Because we keep looking for the perfect money, that which is not subject to inflation or deflation or political manipulation. And um, as again, I've struggled with this thing for a long time. And uh, I think this is practically doable. It takes nothing more than some little intellectual time and uh, uh, some uh, uh, a computer, a simple computer to do. And just like these other indexes, which are marketable, and the question of who should be the sponsor institution, and um, how many think Cato ought to be. And we have a product line here at Cato, but um, we could have Cato or obviously, uh, you know, uh, McGraw-Hill or, or, or um, Dow Jones, which is owned by News Corp or any, any reputable institution, the Swiss Bankers Association, doesn't really matter as long as it's a reputable institution and people would see that, um, you know, it's like the problem we have in trading any new commodity on exchange and it's always hard to get a new commodity going when you trade a commodity in exchange because you have to have both buyers and sellers and people getting used to it. And the Commodity Futures Trading Commission makes it illegal for you to sort of salt the first trades. But you have to to get it going. It's the only way you can. So they have this rule against structuring trades to get things going but they ignore the rule because they know they'd never have a new commodity traded if you didn't have it. That's how all of them get going. And we could do the same thing with a monetary unit of account. And the details of it you can find in the paper. Thank you all very much. Thanks, Richard. Um, before I introduce the next speaker, uh, I'm asked to alert you to the fact that immediately following this session, the Q&A of this session, uh, we will uh, go into uh, the next session. So remain in your seats afterward. There'll be no break between this session and the next, um, the last and final. Um, the final speaker on this panel is uh, my very good friend, George Selgin. Uh, George is a professor of economics uh, at the University of Georgia and a senior fellow at Cato. George has also taught at uh, West Virginia University, University of Hong Kong, and uh, George Mason University. George and I started at GMU as young assistant professors back in 1985. Um, uh, neither of us are young anymore. Fortunately, we're not assistant professors anymore either. <laughs> George. Thank you, Don, for that kind introduction and also for giving people even more compelling reasons for not leaving during my talk. 
Uh, I, I don't think it's a secret to anyone who knows me that I, I do like market-based monetary systems and think they can work very well. And in particular, I think that the gold standard was such a system and that it could have worked very well if governments hadn't mucked around with it. And believe me, if you think that the gold standard worked badly because of inherent problems to it, you haven't read your monetary history carefully enough. It's the central banks that mucked it up. Even Walter Badgett said so, he of the lender of last resort. But we live in a fiat money world today. And any proposal for moving towards a market-based monetary system has to take that reality into account. The world's major fiat monies are subject to entirely discretionary, if not arbitrary, creation and manipulation. They are, in my opinion, best regarded as wild beasts running amok in the world financial system. And any meaningful monetary reform, whether it's market-based or otherwise, has either to tame them or to tether them or to euthanize them. And, and uh, until, not, until before the recent crisis, a lot of people believed that we had, in fact, tamed the world's major fiat currencies. We had gotten them to jump through hoops and do other nice things instead of going around biting people in, well, it doesn't matter where. Um, and uh, this view was reflected in uh, a famous uh, lecture, the Pear Jacobson lecture given by Paul Volcker back in 89, called The Triumph of Central Banking, or rather, The Triumph of Central Banking, because it ended with the, the title as printed, ended with a question mark. Now, Volcker was responding here to an earlier Pear Jacobson lecture by Arthur Burns. Of some 10 years before, after Burns's retirement, he gave his lecture on the anguish of central banking. And in it, he referred to, he declared that, I should say, the persistent inflation that plagues the individual, in, sorry, the industrial democracies will not be vanquished or even substantially curbed until new currents of political thought create a political environment in which the difficult adjustments required to end inflation can be undertaken. This, coming from a just-retired Fed chairman, was a remarkable uh, lecture, a remarkable theme, because it amount, amounted to an admission that the Fed was quite incapable of performing its most fundamental task and that the problem was not any lack of material means on the Fed's part, but simply the lack of the will to do what needed doing given the political incentives at play. Well, Volcker, uh, having, of course, succeeded through his own administration, the Fed, in taming the beast of inflation, could speak uh, of a renaissance of central banking, an era of newfound accord between central banks and their governments in which the former were allowed to exercise scientific control over money unconstrained by any pressure uh, for fiscal accommodation or other assistance to governments. Now, to his credit, Volcker understood that the triumph of which he then spoke might prove to be ephemeral. That's the reason he added the question mark to his lecture's title. He warned that, quote, 
a conclusion that central banks happen to be in relatively good repute today isn't the same as convincing evidence that these, those institutions have now, in fact, equipped themselves to assure greater price and financial stability in years ahead. To make that case will require something more lasting than a demonstration that, at one perceived point of time, they could squeeze a good deal of inflation out of the system. Nor is one exceptionally long period of economic expansion, a period that followed a deep recession, conclusive. Finally, Volcker added, even the partial victory over inflation is not secure. Alas, Volcker's warning proved all too necessary. We now know that reports of the passing of monetary mismanagement were indeed premature. The triumph of central banking that Volcker spoke about was, in fact, but one successful campaign in a war comprising an almost uninterrupted sequence of monetary calamities, from the post-World I inflationary binge to the great contraction of the 30s to the present decade subprime boom and bust. And that, un- and that one undeniable success over which Volcker presided is indeed now less secure than ever. I doubt, nevertheless, that any central banker will ever be so bold as to give a Pear Jacobson lecture on the theme of the futility of central banking. Yet the time has come to speak on that topic, for it has become obvious, to me at least, uh, in case it wasn't already so long ago, that central banks generally, and the Federal Reserve in particular, are not only incapable of averting recurrent financial and monetary catastrophes, but are incapable even of resisting policies that inadvertently cause such catastrophes. Now, at this point, you might say, well, here comes a plea that we impose rules on central banks, that we tether them, them. And yet, of course, you know that I'm going to, you should know that I'm going to say we need to euthanize them. What I mean by taking that position is simply this. I don't think the idea of, a, of central banks being either discretionary or rule-bound makes any sense. It makes no institutional sense. Central banks are, in essence, in, uh, discretionary institutions. They are constituted that way. More precisely, central bankers are beings who are bound to exercise monetary discretion. Like a married bachelor, a truly rule-bound central banker is an impossibility. It really is. I'm absolutely serious about this. Because both the background of central bankers and the incentives they confront, combined with the inescapable inability of even the most defensible of monetary rules to address every conceivable contingency make it impossible for central bankers to resist the temptation to tinker. Now, this point, I think, was very well illustrated by the recent uh, housing market debacle. Between the 1980s disinflation and the dot-com crash, the Fed could boast of having overseen a period of overall monetary stability of a duration unprecedented in recent experience, at least recent fiat money experience. 
this so-called great moderation was, of course, what seemed to justify Volcker's tentative optimism about the triumph of central banking. But what it really represented uh, was a triumph, an inadvertent triumph, for proponents of monetary rules. It was using evidence from this period that John Taylor was able to show that the Fed had been conducting policy, policy all along largely as if it had been adhering to a relatively simple monetary rule. What's more, Taylor had shown, uh, ha has shown more recently that had the Fed simply stuck to the rule that has since been named after him, uh, most of the post-2001 housing boom, and by implication, most of the consequent bust, might have been avoided. Well, what's the point of what I'm of this uh, experience? The point is that surely, of all possible monetary rules, none could have been easier for the Fed to follow than one derived from its own past conduct. Right? That's making following a monetary rule pretty easy. Just keep doing what you've been doing successfully for many years. Yet the Fed wasn't able to resist making substantial ad hoc departures from the rule in the wake of the dot-com crisis. And this was after, of course, it was actually referring to Taylor's rule in making its policy deliberations. Instead of raising its federal funds target in response to growing signs of recovery from the dot-com bust, as the Taylor rule would have required, the FOMC found ways to rationalize keeping the rate low. In particular, and now I want to get into some details that I think are important for understanding this past episode, the FOMC treated an ongoing surge in productivity as a reason for further delaying a return of the federal funds rate from 1% to its long-run average of more like 3%. And they did this, moreover, even though, if anything, a productivity surge provides reason to think that the neutral real rate of interest is higher than usual, not lower than usual. They reasoned that the surge, by putting downward pressure on prices, would allow them to depart from their normal policy without sparking inflation. I've got some really pretty figures you can look at in the paper that shows how the greater the productivity uh, growth became, anticipated or predicted growth, the lower the federal funds rate was uh, allowed to uh, go and remain because they thought they could get away with it. In short, the FOMC saw productivity gains as an opportunity to keep revving up the credit engine without risking a speeding ticket. That doing so might ultimately cause parts of the economy to overheat and eventually fail does not seem to have deterred it. The point is simply not that the Fed made a mistake but that it erred by departing from a relatively tried and true, though certainly imperfect, rule, using clever but misguided re reasoning to justify doing so. And this kind of misguided innovation is, in my, belief, in my opinion, inevitable given the constitution of the Fed and that of other central banks. It's inevitable, that is, that an FOMC consisting of expert monetary economists cannot be expected to set, set that expertise aside in making policy, as, it, as if it consisted of so many mere clerks. The same is true for all central banks. It's 
simply not possible to put in a bunch of expert economists in charge of monetary policy and then tell them to just follow a rule that's pretty good. And uh, this is not a question of subtle time inconsistency problems or political influence, as many writings on the subject of rules versus discretion suggest. Those factors do also undermine central banks' ability to adhere to self-imposed rules. But the main problem seems to be much more prosaic. It consists of nothing more than monetary authorities' perfectly well-meaning yet ultimately misguided desire to use their heads. So what I'm trying to suggest is, the, and I'm out of time, but in order to really deal with the problem of fiat money issuing central banks, we have to euthanize them in the sense of doing away with the whole idea of experts running monetary policy. We need to have an institution run not by people who are pilots, let alone rocket scientists, but more like policemen whose only job is to enforce some simple workable monetary rule. Thank you very much. Thanks, George. We have uh, actually just over 15 minutes for Q&A. I, when I introduced George, I forgot to mention his, his last book, Good Money, is a, um, it's a great, great read, both in economics and history. Just, just one comment I, I have. In light of what's happened recently in the economy, I'm not sure I'm in favor of euthanizing central banks. I, I think I'd like to torture and execute them. <laughs> uh, anyway, question. Uh, we'll start here, and wait. let's wait for the microphone. Thank you. I'm Jim Johnston from the Heartland Institute in Chicago. And we have another institution in Chicago besides the university, and it's called the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And that's the place that has all of these components in your basket of commodities, exchanges, exchange rates, foreign currencies, uh, derivatives, futures, options, and you can uh, rearrange all of these things, and they have extra clearing uh, operations to keep people adhering to their contracts, and the, and the contracts go out a decade or so. Now, the, it seems to me that instead of trying to invent something new within the regulatory regime, why don't we look at the free market? Goodness sake, it's already developed it. And it started in 1972 uh, when an obscure monetary economist from the University of Chicago called Milton Friedman uh, endorsed the establishment of these foreign exchange contracts. And since 1972 to the present day, there hasn't been one failure of, on those contracts. And they started out being exchange-traded contracts with all of the clearing operations associated with it. So, you know, why don't we, why don't we look at actual free markets for a change in, in trying to devise interesting policies and new institutions. Um, obviously, I'm a fan of such things. But if you look at them, you'll see that the swings are uh, still pretty steep against the dollar. And this is why you don't make long-term contracts. When I was doing some international business, you have problems where if you have longer-term contracts and you've got big swings in the fluctuation of currencies, 
like the euro and the dollar have swung between 80 and a dollar 60 over the last six years, seven years. And if you're making longer-term business contracts, that's a big problem, as well as the systemic inflation one. And it gets back to this problem. The commodities we trade um, are a small portion of how we really consume these days, and you can't really turn it into a money. I mean, at least I've, I've I, again, I've played with this, and I love these kind of contracts, and they provide an enormous a great usefulness, um, but in yes, but it gets very complex to do all this. Yeah, well, but what we need are simple things that um, you don't like. For instance, big corporations and build currency cocktails and all that kind of thing. Uh, big international corporation to help protect themselves, but we need something very simple that the the typical. Uh, investor can use a Dow Jones index. They can go in and buy stocks and things like that. Everybody sort of understands without understanding the mechanics of how it's done. And I think you can get a greater monetary stability by using a currency basket with all the imperfections in the individual currencies and fully indexing it for inflation. And I lay out some of the mechanics the way you can do that in my paper. I think you can get a better result in something that is really useful in terms of making contracts and also making evaluations of uh, relative economic performance, which we have trouble now doing among uh, the various currencies of the world. And eventually people will find ways to come out with uh, sort of surrogate monies, and I think the market will lead to that. I mean, I, I agree with your, your fundamental premise, but again, I've studied this a lot and I think mechanically, it's easier to do with a basket of currencies that's fully indexed for inflation. I completely agree with your point. In fact, the, the system of sort of a, a capital requirement that uh, we envision for large institutions is exactly borrowed from, from that. It seems to be working great there. We need to make some adjustments, but I think that the idea is, is the right one. Other questions? Right here. And then... It has to do with Dr. Singales' uh, proposal that I find very interesting. But over the last couple of years, at the same time of meetings, we heard comments from different speakers talking about different leverages of bank. Uh, one talking about 30 to 1, the other one 11 to 1, uh, referring to the same bank, to the same uh, date, and really not knowing that they are talking about totally different measures, instruments. One is a risk-weighted leverage, the other one is a nominal leverage, and such a confusion. So in order to have any chance for all these markets to, to function and to supervise and to get the right message, do, what do we have to do first to get rid of the confusing material that the regulators have introduced? Because obviously when a regulator arbitrary says a loan to a government has 0%, a loan to a AAA has 1.6%, a loan to an entrepreneur has 8%, that is just confusing. There's no way the market can read through those signals. So how much clearing the forest does your uh, proposal require? 
I think that he can definitely benefit from clear, clearing the forest, but uh, I think that the beauty of the, our mechanism is its simplicity. It doesn't require any of those things. And it's just, I think it's very hard to determine what is the right leverage for, for the different institutions because they take a different amount of risk. So let the market decide. If you make the regulation the base of what is the price of the credit default swap, the credit default swap incorporates both information about the leverage and the information about the riskness of the underlying asset. So in one number, uh, summarize everything you need to know. And the other beauty is that it's completely portable across different institutions because this regulation should not only be for large banks, should be also for large edge funds or large sort of uh, insurance companies. And, uh, you know, if you start to measure things in accounting terms, then you get bogged down in, all oh, the accounting for banks is different from the accounting for insurance companies, different from accounting for hedge funds. If you go down to a market-based measure, which is the price of your CDS, that's equal for everybody. And the simpler it is, the less easy it is to go around with tricks. That's, that's the beauty of it. Ben McCall. <clears throat> Respond to uh, Rob Greenfield's um, challenge or whatever to respond to Leland Yeager's footnote number three. I want, that's in my role as a as a teacher. <laughs> uh, the question was: How does this does a central bank control a pegged interest rate like the federal funds rate without manipulating the volume of bank reserves? Well, it doesn't. The art and the uh, standard academic academic uh, argument doesn't say that it doesn't. So what's going on? Well, suppose a central bank wants to tighten policy. It does so by making open market sales. Doing so reduces the money stock, the high-powered money supply, and simultaneously raises the nominal rate of interest. The question is which of those two moving uh, variables the Federal Reserve or the central bank looks at to decide when it's done enough of whatever it's doing. And um, the, 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 the real idea is that the, federal, that the central bank simply uses the federal funds rate as their indicator of how much tightness or looseness uh, they are providing. And uh, some of John Taylor's uh, writings, not his most famous uh, paper, but some in 1999, explain that pretty much. Now... I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that all central bank, <laughs> central bank employees or policymakers or even economists understand what it is they think they're doing. I'm telling you about how to understand it analytically. Now, I mean, I, I am basically a monetarist. My friends were uh, Carl Brunner and Alan Meltzer, and I, and I uh, learned much of my monetary economics from a uh, time spent as a visitor to uh, Friedman's workshop. Uh, so I, I have worked hard to try and discredit the idea that the use of, a, of an interest rate as, as the left-hand side variable on a policy rule is, is the right way to go, and that you can do monetary economics, uh, monetary policy analysis in models in which there is no monetary aggregate, which is the, which is the popular procedure among the mainstream um, of the profession. And, you know, I worked pretty hard at trying to uh, discredit the mainstream point of view, and I had to conclude that uh, except for one very minor matter that I really don't think I can make any headway with, uh, the, this procedure is analytically all right. The problem isn't 
that the that the Fed uses the federal funds right. They don't peg the federal. Well, they they sort of do. It's that they don't do it right. You know, they don't move enough in the direction that they need to move. They're too. They're stuck. They're afraid. They're they're political pressures. Uh, that's the real problem with it. But just use of an interest rate operating instrument is not itself fundamentally uh, going to mess up uh, central bank monetary policy making. Well, I think uh, Yeager would disagree with you. Uh, he would not accept using an interest rate as something that brings the supply of and demand for money into equality with one another. He would deny that the supply of and demand for money uh, confront one another directly at the banks or anywhere else to determine an interest rate. Uh, that, I think, would be his answer. Uh, but with respect... We're talking about open market operations. We're not talking about controlling interest rates. We're talking about conducting open market operations. I, I, I understand, but wouldn't you agree that using the interest rate in that fashion has introduced a pro-cyclicality in the money supply? No. You wouldn't. Okay. Well. It could. If you did it wrong. I, I, I think monetary policy analysis has been much better since 1992 okay. than it was before. Well, well, perhaps so. Now, on the other point, I think his complaint is that too frequently these days we uh, have discussions of monetary policy that don't mention money whatsoever. That, I think, is his main point. Well, that upsets me, too. <laughs> <laughs> Good, we, we agree. Other questions? <coughs> Going once? Well, yeah, <laughs> we, have, we have four extra minutes. Well, um, I Stay in your seats because the next session will begin in just a moment. Join me again in thanking our distinguished and accomplished panel. Thank you.